is the Otaku Nate Show, Episode 9, Claymore. One woman and her honor. Fans, Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Justin Young. Hey. And Jordan Lazaro. Hello. Thank you for having me back on. No problem, man. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at Claymore. Claymore was released in 2007 by Studio Madhouse and was adapted from a manga by Norohiro Yagi. His only other manga of note is an action comedy series called Angel Densetsu, which I really want to read, because I've seen pictures of it, and it looks great. The director of this was Hiroyuki Tanaka. This was his directorial debut, and as far as I know, it is his only major directorial credit. He has worked as a producer on things like Mavlub, Hamatora, he's been assistant director on a few things, but he's best known for being the chief producer for Yuri on Ice. The writer for this show is Yasuko Kobayashi. And the last time I had the two of you on, we actually reviewed something she wrote. Huh. Wow. <laughs> Kakegurui. Yep, she wrote Kakegurui. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that that is the worst thing she has ever written. Because if you look at her resume, in terms of adaptation and original works, it's definitely way more hits than misses. I mean, she wrote motherfucking JoJo for crying out loud. So, who wants to give the premise of Claymore? Um, Berserk meets The Witcher. I'd say that's pretty much it. Uh, Justin, you want to give a more detailed description? Well, you got... (laughs) medieval world sort of like game of thrones that where everyone is constantly under attack from these uh demon demonoid oh that's a word demonoid monsters called yoma i think demonoid is a word considering that it's derivative from humanoid i'll allow it yay so these yoma they generally cause total and utter mayhem and to combat them there's a there's a mysterious well, they're literally called the organization. Real original which, name there. Yeah, we'll probably get some more on that later. And they have these awesome, by the way, female warriors called Claymores. And just for the record, the name, of course, comes from the sword, which a lot of history nerds out there should know that. And these Claymore, they travel around uh, fighting Yoma. And am I allowed to say that they're that they're sort of not quite human. You're allowed to say that they're half Ad- human, half Yoma. Yeah, Yoma additions, we should say, which is of course problematic for a bunch of paranoid, done with everything villagers. And of course, the Claymore we're following, her name is 
Claire. Generally, the anime is going to go through a lot of her backstory as well as her current story. She also picks up a Gabrielle-like traveling companion, but male this time, named Rocky. Spelled R-A-K-I, not R-O-C-K-Y like in the U.S. And anything else I need to hit? Anything else that I can hit without drawing the ire of the bleep machine? Uh, not really. It's just Claire and Rocky go to town, kill Yom, and collect the bounty. That's all. Yep, that's it. But that's the technical stuff out of the way. So I just want to know, where did you guys first hear or discover Claymore? Good thing I have TV tropes up here on my phone. I actually read about it once in the um, someone famous's list of work. I think it might have been, well, you think it was either Laura Bailey or Caitlin Glass. Just read about it from their body of work, and uh, that was pretty. That's how I got familiar with the title, which is cool, by the way. Um, I found this anime on a complete whim. Actually, I'm trying to remember the DVD that I owned, but they had an advert for Claymore, and I was like, "Oh, that looks cool! Swords, armor, lots of blood. Let me check it out." And I remember back in the day, I had to uh, watch it on KissAnime.com. I'm bleeping that out, just letting you know. Because I do not condone the use or mention of pirate sites, young man. Go to the corner and think about what you've done, good sir. Hey, you know, back in the day, that's all I had. It was a different landscape back in 27 when I was in middle school, man. Hey, guilty as charged here, too. So as for me, I actually knew about the manga before the anime, because I believe I saw an advert for the manga and I heard good things. And I just bought it from Barnes & Noble out of curiosity back in my high school days. I believe it was actually around the time the anime was coming out. And when I first read it, I was just stunned. Because it was the first manga I remember reading where I bought it for the artwork. Because the artwork in the original manga is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, it is clear that Norohiro Yagi is cribbing a lot from Kintaro Miura, and we'll get to the Berserk comparisons when we talk about the show itself, but I was just stunned by its beauty, and I just kept buying more and more of the manga that I never read. I am currently up to volume 13. I Actually, no, I just finished volume 13, and I'm about to start volume 14, but it's past where the anime adaptation ends. And because I had heard so many good things about the anime adaptation, I naturally bought the box set from Funimation. I've got the art box with all six DVDs in it, and it just sat on my shelf collecting dust. And I never really watched it until I started this podcast, and, well, let's talk about it. So, so with everything we've done with our initial impressions on the premise, I think we should start talking about the anime proper. And I'm just gonna say straight up, I don't think the show is aged well from a technical perspective, at least in terms of animation. Would you agree with me? Oh, yeah, totally. The animation, I didn't expect this when I first watched it, but it actually has fallen apart. I thought my TV was broken. Well, it kind of was, but that's on you, Funimation. Um, but past the app crashing, I was actually surprised how much it's aged, both from a, both in terms of animation and... Dare I say it, the actual voice acting has started to age. Thoughts on the animation? Um, I think the art style has aged very well. 
The animation, however, I have to agree. I was not a big fan of a lot of the jump cuts that they would do in combat. It was very jarring and just, it frankly just kind of showed the lack of budget that the show actually had. Oh man, the jump cuts. So many. I've said many times before, but I do not like that early 2000s style of digital animation where everything just looks flat or the color balance just feels washed out, or there's just virtually no aesthetic. It's broken from the start. The show came out in 2007, but it looks like it came out in 2002. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, to be honest, I thought there was something wrong with my TV, because I'm looking, and the washed-out color palette was just absolutely jarring, especially if you watch the opening, which has proper coloration. Uh Uh-huh. Well, if you go and watch something like Wolf's Reign or something that came out in the early part of the 2000s, you'll see that aesthetic. Like, Wolf's Reign and Razafon are two shows that come to mind from the get-go. But the thing is, is that this was 2007, and this was right around the time where studios were starting to perfect the art of digital animation. Because this was the year that we had Code Geass and Gurren Lagann and Monster come out. And those shows still hold up pretty well in terms of animation. Yeah, especially in the case of Gurren Lagann, where that show hasn't aged a day. Seriously, aside from that one one-off episode, I think it was like episode four where they have that weird art style flip. It honestly looks as good as many animes that come out today. But with Claymore, it just doesn't hold up even by the year it came out. For comparison, one year before this, Black Lagoon came out. Same studio, I should add. And that show doesn't look nearly as dated as Claymore does. And I think a lot of its faults come apart in what is sadly the action scenes. Yes. <laughs> oh, Without no. a doubt. Without a doubt. That was when I, that was really when I noticed that things were coming undone was Every every fight scene, as much as I hate to say it, or I could point out something something wrong that was happening. Like you got jump cuts, discoloration, and generally broken looking animation that the didn't one... seem to even match with uh, with the characters' intents. It was weird. Not to mention the uh, criminal amount of reused animation throughout the entirety <laughs> of the show. If I saw one more shoulder cleave, I was going to lose my mind. There, yes. There's one thing this show does, and this was the one bit of lazy animation that stood out to me. Anytime they have to showcase the girls swinging their swords rapidly, they'll just use motion blur on the arms. Exactly! <laughs> yep. that so fast. <laughs> I half expected the girls to start yelling, Ah! Or, and just to appeal to the JoJo fans, I'd be lying if I didn't expect that at least the first time. I was expecting the JoJo onomatopoeias to pop up when they started swinging exactly. their swords like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, pitch combat Dragon Ball style. And fights here, everyone's all up in each other's face. And, it's, and then our motion blur. I mean, Dragon Ball Z and Fist of the North Star can get away with it because they can at least make these animation shortcuts look good. 
but Claymore just can't. The motion blur on the arms, it's like two frames just repeated. Yeah, not to mention the motion blur effects. They were cool back when Dragon Ball and Fist of the North Star first came out, but in 2007, you don't really have much of an excuse for doing stuff like that. Well, that's cell animation versus digital animation, and a lot of those cell animated shows, when they do a trick like that, what are called smear frames, you don't notice it. But the animation shortcuts in Claymore are very noticeable. And for an action show, all of this stuff that we're mentioning, it just feels inexcusable. And this is Madhouse we're talking about. Madhouse! That's the surprising part out of all of this. Like, I still can't believe Madhouse had a hand in this show, just considering their track record. I expected animation like this from a studio like JC Staff, or Dean, or B-Train, but no, it's Madhouse! The studio that a year prior gave us both Black Lagoon and Paprika and a dozen other action titles that still look good, but Claymore just feels so meh in terms of action, which is sad because... Which is sad because I love the art style in this series. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the character designs. I like the, um... I like the weapon designs, and I liked a lot of the... Well, okay, not all the background work... But generally, it looked on paper like it should be way more fluid and beautiful than what we got, in my opinion. I just feel that with that washed-out color palette, a lot of the beauty doesn't really get a chance to shine through because the original artwork in Yagi's original manga is absolutely stunning, to say the least. The character designer, Takahiro Umehara, did a great job of adapting Yagi's original artwork to the screen. I think what I can praise the character design the most is that all the Claymores have the exact same aesthetic. They wear these grayish blue cloth, I don't want to say cloth, like leather outfits, and they all have this pale blonde hair with silver eyes, and yet each one manages to both look and feel unique. And I think that's sort of the trick to great character designs. Because one of the biggest questions you should ask a character designer is, can you draw a bunch of characters wearing the same uniform and still make them feel unique? And here the challenge is ratcheted up with the philosophy of, can you draw a bunch of characters wearing the same uniform with the same design aesthetic and have each one feel unique? And in that regard, the anime pulls it off flawlessly. Oh, no, definitely. Uh, One thing I actually really did enjoy speaking on that, if you looked closely, a lot of the characters had subtle differences in their armors like whether it was different designs to the gauntlets to the metal rivets that connected the um polderons the big shoulder pads oh yes there was just a lot of variety which is actually surprising given the fact that how many characters are in this show and how you could have easily made them look very samey They may look similar, but they don't blend together. Each one stands out in their own unique way. Do you guys have a favorite Claymore design? Ah, shoot. Ah, I can't... This show has such good costume design overall. I almost can't... I really can't pick one person out. I really was... At the beginning of this, I wanted to say, Oh, Claire, that's the best uh, design, hands down. But I ended up changing my mind about... Five and a half times, and I legit can't pin one down. I just can't, so I won't. I've got three. 
my favorites are Miria, just because I like the hair on her combined with... She's got the super huge shoulder pads, doesn't she? Yes. Yep. Okay. The second of my favorites is Ophelia, just because I love that off-putting aura you get from looking at her. Because the show plays her up as sort of being this claymore that's not to be trusted, and you get that right away from looking at her. Uh-huh. Yep. And the third of my favorites is Undine, because I love anime girls that are made from 100% pure beef. <laughs> you like your you like your anime girls how I like my trucks. <laughs> oh lord. For me at least, I probably have a list of three claimers that I very much enjoyed the design of. One of them was Helena, especially because how her armor was designed played to her powers, which was a nice little attention to detail. Um, my second one would be Raphaela. Not a character that you got to see all too much, but just having that missing eye, she had just much more armor on her, which could, you know, could tell that she was much more battle-hardened, she was a defensive-type fighter. I like that they didn't give her an eye patch. Yeah, they just left the wound there, which is something not a lot of animes do, which I definitely appreciated. Very and unique and helps set the show apart again, very once, well. Once again, cribbing from Berserk, but it's unique enough where it doesn't feel like it's a rip-off. Precisely. And uh, lastly, I have to give it to my favorite Claymore, Teresa. She just carries the sense of regality to her that just sets her apart from all the other Claymores. Teresa ended up being part of my five-way tie between... It was Claire, Teresa, Helena, Miria, and Ophelia. I also want to just say I like the designs of the Yoma. Very simple, but very effective. Very menacing. Not too complicated, but they do just enough to strike fear when you look at them. Mm-hmm. That's definitely for sure. Something you're actively rooting for to get cut to pieces. As anime logic goes, you can always tell who the bad guys are because they look really ugly. That definitely shines through here. Insert Glitter Force meme here. Indeed. And I think that's going to do it for the animation. I feel that from a looks standpoint, it's fine. But once the show has to go into motion, that's when it loses a lot of its luster. Mm-hmm. It's a show that looks a lot better in stills than it does in motion. Like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Much as I hate to say it, I will concede that about HB. I love them to death, though. (laughs) That's something I didn't expect to hear from somebody from my generation. We've talked about the animation, so let's move on to the soundtrack. The music for this was done by Masanori Takami, who has done music for such action titles like Genshiken, Koikaze, and Suzuka, and such non-action titles like Witchblade. I love that dig at Witchblade. So, <laughs> this music, though, was wonderful. I like the opening a lot. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. This was back when Visual K was the big thing with that sort of gothic rock feel to it. Yeah. Fun fact, the same people that did the first Death Note opening did the Claymore opening. Nightmare. I did not know that. Nice. Mm-hmm. I did not know that either. And also some very... Oh, my gosh. I keep thinking... There was like a slide or a, a slide guitar or a synth bit that would occur around fight scenes, which was one of my favorite tracks of the whole show. I wish I, caught, wish I were playing it right now. It's because um, the reason I love that one so much is 
because it sets up the tension really well, whether it's a fight between, it's a little squabble between Claymores or full-on Claymore versus Yoma uh, centerpiece fight. Whenever you got this, it was like a two or three note riff, you knew you were in for something cool. See, I'm of a different mind about the soundtrack because I think the soundtrack is fine until the electric guitars kick in. Because I feel that this is a medieval fantasy show. I expected a more, well, medieval soundtrack. And it works a little better during the final episodes when they have that big final battle. But in the earlier episodes, it really ruins the immersion. If I was going to talk about the soundtrack when I first watched Claymore, I would definitely agree with you, Nate. But this, uh, just kind of reflecting back on the soundtrack, it does a lot of similarities to a game like Final Fantasy XIV, where it takes a lot of genres of music that wouldn't ordinarily fit in the setting, but they go for it. That's something I really did enjoy about Claymore, because you could easily get lost in the sweep of your generic fantasy soundtracks and whatnot. But when that synth techno-ish song would play during tense situations, or the electric guitar would kick in metal, it was very... It caught your attention, which is something I very enjoyed. It really framed the fact that this is a fight. Pay attention. Well, unfortunately, I wish the animation held up to it. Oh, that one synth song that sounds like someone farting? Or that dubstep bit. I didn't mind it, actually. I didn't mind it either. I reviewed Witchblade back when I was doing video reviews, and I feel that my critiques of that OST can apply to the Claymore soundtrack. I liked the slower, moodier, more orchestral tracks more than the hard rock soundtracks. Oh, their orchestrated songs are absolutely beautiful in Claymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's to my surprise that Claymore was the last anime... Masanori Takumi had a hand in doing a soundtrack Really? I did not know this. Yes. Claymore was the absolute last anime he was in charge of doing the soundtrack for, which is a shame because he would have definitely nailed those sweeping orchestral themes in other fantasy animes. We needed this dude after 2010. Yes, definitely. I just feel that... I guess a lot of these tracks, like the heavier ones, work a lot better out of context, but in context, I feel that it sort of hindered the emotion. They're great songs, and I'm not going to deny that. I just feel that they weren't used correctly when it came to combat. I mean, I don't mind synth soundtracks in medieval fantasy settings, but as long as they fit the mood, and I don't feel that those heavy metal tracks really fit the setting of Claymore that much. Think if they were maybe orchestrated a little bit differently or a little bit less cheap sounding, it would have blended in a lot better. I kind of think at this point that it's just part of the decade. Because, like I said, the guy who did the soundtrack for this show, there are a bunch of anime made after 2010, or even after 07 in particular, that I really wish he had done the music for. But in this case, it's a little bit of its time, which... I'm honestly willing to excuse, at least within the context of the show. I think we can agree with that. Not a bad soundtrack, but I feel that it could have been handled a little better. Definitely. Also, there is one song I want to specifically shout out, which I don't think gets enough love. The end credit oh. theme song was absolutely if there phenomenal. Was, if, the, 
credit scene was bulletproof. If that soundtrack sounded more like the ending theme, I would have given it a lot more praise. It's because yes. it's a lot more fitting yes. mm-hmm. with the show's setting and its aesthetic. But that's it for the soundtrack. Now it's time for me to bore you with discussion of the voice actors. And I switched between the dub and the sub for this one, but the subcast is absolutely stacked. Okay, (laughs) so Claire is voiced by Hoko Kuwashima. And oh my lord, her resume. To give you some of her video game roles, she was... Mei Ling in Metal Gear Solid, Sarah in Shin Megami Tensei Digital Devil Saga, Sung Mina in Soul Calibur, and Precia in Tales of Symphonia, and she's the voice of Kasumi in Dead or Alive. Wait, what? Yeah! <laughs> she's Kasumi! Oh, wow, okay. That, 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 that Kasumi? Wow, okay. I don't as far know as anime roles go, she is Sango in Inuyasha, she is Tomoyo in Clanad. Yuki Mori in Yamato 2199, and speaking of space opera roles for her, she's Scarlet in Space Dandy, and she's also the voice of Kaiba in... Kaiba. That's not where I thought that was going. Nope. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about Kaiba someday on the show and the greatness of Masaki Yuasa. Rocky is voiced by Motoki Takagi. He hasn't really done too much. His only real notable roles are Renji Aso in F A Tale of Memories slash melodies. Teresa, meanwhile, is voiced by Romy Park. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect for reasons that I'll get you know, to know. Ed Elric, Han Zoe in Attack on Titan, she's Naoto in Persona 4, Toshiro in Bleach. I'll always know her as being the voice of Aikawamaki from Air Master. Miria is voiced by my favorite Seiyu, and that is Kikuko Inoue. I know her best as Belle Dandy in Oh My Goddess, but you may know her as Cecile in Code Geass, Mizuho Kazami in Please Teacher, and Kasumi Tendo in Ranma One Half. Claire's handler, Ruble, is voiced by Hiroaki Hirata. Uh, Justin, you may remember him as being the voice of Kotetsu slash Wild Tiger from Tiger and Bunny. Everybody knows him as the voice of Sanji. We've also got Nana Mizuki playing Riefel. That's a name I haven't she's heard She's Anne in, in Persona 5, Fate Testarossa in Nanoha, and she's the voice of Hinata. That's probably her most well-known role, Hinata from Naruto. And lastly on the Japanese side, we have three of the Sailor Soldiers from Sailor Moon. We've got Aya Hisakawa playing Priscilla. She was Sailor Mercury. We've got Emi Shinohara, Sailor Jupiter, as Ophelia, and Sailor Moon herself, Kotono Mitsuishi, as Jean. Wow. Didn't see There's coming. a lot of talent. Just go through this list. You'll find so many. Even the one-episode characters have some pretty big names attached to them, like Tomokazu Seki and Nobuyuki Hiyama, and even Minori Chihara. So the Japanese side is stacked with talent, but the dub is no slouch either. We've got Stephanie Young in the lead as Claire and Todd Habercorn as Rocky. What did you think of their performances? Stephanie Young, bulletproof. Habercorn played himself, <laughs> which is hilarious because he he directed this whole he directed the whole thing and wrote part of it and does a bunch of filler stuff and some audio engineering as well. 
which is why I'm surprised that he basically played himself in terms of voicing Rock. Played himself? Yeah, what I mean is he managed to underutilize his own self for the most part. I don't want to get into spoilers on that front, but for the most part, I found this to be actually a solid 6 out of 10 Funimation dub. They put out better in the past, and they, and of course they're putting out way better now, but it's actually, it's like okay, but it could have been a little bit better. And if I remember where in the world Vic McGana showed up, Vic McName, I should say. He was, he uh, was the final Rigaldo. boss. He was the yeah, final so boss. That's like him. Him. Yep, that's him. Thank you, by the way. That was funny considering original Ed Elric is in here as well. Rubel, voiced by our Bruce Elliott from Case Closed. Very good job. Very good job. Easily, as much as, much as I want to say that Richards is best role, I'm going to go out on here and say it. Rubel is probably our Bruce Elliott's best role. Dude owned it. And that's all of my shout outs so far. Oh, wait a minute. Shout out to Caitlin Glass. As Deneva and Lucy Christian oh, as Lucy Ophelia. Christian Very well done, and I did not see mm. that coming. Just a lot of notable names on this one. Monica Rial is my highlight because she plays Miria. Because I always love it whenever Monica has to use her lower register. It really showcases that she has an amazing range for voice acting. Speaking of Monica, we've also got Jamie Markey in here as Helen. Some other notable names from the Funimation crew, we've got Brina Palencia, Anastasia Munoz, Brittany Karbowski, you mentioned Caitlin Glass, uh, Shirami Lee doing some quintuple billing as well. Oh, forgot to mention, shout out to Jamie Markey for uh, acting out of type, and actually for the most part pulling it off. This is a, definitely a side of Jamie Markey I'm not used to hearing, and I wish we could hear this more of it. also in a few times where she's played a character that doesn't die in gratuitous fashion. Doesn't die in gratuitous fashion, or try to <laughs> sleep with everybody, or anything. Yeah, if you, love it. if you follow a lot of Jamie Markey's characters, then you'll know that they die in gratuitous fashion. Mm-hmm. Of course, two more standouts that you didn't mention are two people that I miss in the voice acting world. I don't know if they're still active or just don't do as much today, but... Christine Outen as Teresa and Claire Harp as Undine. I miss these well, two. Like, like Claire Harp just has this really natural sort of husky voice to her that is super fitting for Undine. And Christine Outen is perhaps one of the more overlooked actors that came out of the ADV class. And there's a lot of overlooked actors that came out of ADV's Houston studio. Good thing Christine's still working. Clarine is making Funimation's DVDs and now Blu-rays. It's always cool whenever you have somebody who does tech work behind the scenes doing voiceover roles. Like, look at the works of Pixar, for example. Pixar uses a lot of their staff in minor voice roles. Gives it a very cool, homely feel, usual, when pulled off right, I should say. Uh, Jordan, do you have anything to say about this dub? Um, well, one, I'm surprised we glossed over Laura Bailey as Jean. That was a role I did not expect her to be in. She did not sound like the usual characters that she plays. Because I'm still hearing her through Persona 4, a game I'm currently playing. And just hearing the difference between Risei and Jean, I was like, wow, this she's had some serious talent. This was back when she was still with Funimation as one of their stalwarts before she graduated to bigger things. Yeah. You want to hear a jarring hat moment? So... I had a friend of mine, that same friend, 
my hope will appear in a future episode. And she and I are watching Yu Yu Hakusho right literally about a couple hours before I started this. And, uh, of course, Laura Bailey is Keiko in that. And so imagine the look on my face. Just imagine it when I found out that Gene was Laura Bailey. Honestly, I, I think it was a passable dub. It wasn't Higurashi bad, but it was definitely not as good as other Funimation dubs, dubs I've heard. I the same feel time. that I would be inclined to agree. It's definitely not a bad dub, but I yeah. definitely heard better from Funimation. I was able to watch the dub with the subtitles turned on, and it was fairly faithful to the original script. I do have a problem with characters using modern swear words in a medieval setting. Like, they say the F word, even though the F word didn't come into existence around, like, the 15th or 16th century, if what I have read is to be believed. I'm willing to ignore that because it worked. And it was very obvious the show was written and dubbed for sort of an HBO. A very casual only, audience. Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty much written and dubbed for that audience. So, you know what? I'm actually surprised they didn't curse more. I, they really could have used it. Oh, definitely. They, they were very conservative with the cursing in this anime, which I was completely surprised. I feel the days of 15ing are over. 15ing, for those who don't know, is <laughs> when, in the early days of anime dubbing, they would pump up the cursing just to get the point across that, hey, this anime stuff isn't for kids, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, remember, I remember watching one of those one of those dubs on YouTube once. And, yeah. It's like, it reminds me of everything I used to hate about Family Guy in South Park when I was a kid. But that's gonna do it, and now we can get on to talking about the show properly. When talking about Claymore, I feel that you cannot talk about Claymore without bringing up the comparisons to Berserk, because it's a very similar sort of story. This dark medieval fantasy setting following around a being that wields a giant sword. Well, Claire's sword isn't exactly giant, but it is a big sword. She travels with a companion from place to place, dealing with demons. The similarities are there, and I've I've heard Claymore called Diet Berserk or Berserk but with a chick. Do you think that's a fair comparison? I also would have called it Xena but not as trying as hard to be 80s. Oh no, like with Claymore, I feel that the way it tells its story and the way it frames itself, it's very timeless. Like you couldn't pinpoint what decade this manga came out in. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think the... Direct comparisons to Berserk are completely fair. Art style, yes, it's definitely heavily inspired, so... But just the the story's a lot more simple. The characters and their motivations aren't as in-depth and just... They don't have that level of ambition. I wrote this down in my notes, but if Berserk is like drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, then Claymore is like drinking Landshark. It's not in a case where it's cheap or necessarily bad for you or an inferior product. It's just a completely different taste. You don't go to Claymore for this big sort of epic story. You go for the action and the simplicity of it all. And I think that's what's the appeal of Claymore is that it's very simple in its nature. It's not trying to tell you this big, grandiose, epic story spanning 
a decade or so. It's just, hey, here's a bunch of girls with swords slaying Yoma, and also this kid that pals around with Claire. Would you say that's accurate? That's pretty accurate. Yeah, I'd completely agree. Okay. And the show's simplicity starts with Claire herself, because she's a very basic sort of character. Indeed. I actually kind of compared her to a sort of your typical stoic action hero type. Um... Which actual is sort of stoic, and I'm just and you can't really tell exactly what their intentions are just from at a glance, but also you're like, it's sort of, they sort of that stoicness that sort of draws you in a little bit because they're like, okay, what else can she do? And frankly, I just want to see her, I want to see her just win, win, win. I think that's very much the appeal of Claire, is her stoic nature. Stoic and powerful. I forgot to add that mm -hmm. part in. Well, powerful later on, at least. She has that aura of mystique to her. Like, when you first see her show up, you immediately want to know more about her. And the show does tell you more about her, because... This is where I feel the comparison to Berserk is apt, because... The first few episodes are her going from town to town, slaying Yoma with Rocky by her side. And then for the next few episodes, we reveal her backstory about how she was an orphan whose family was murdered by Yoma. And that she spent time with a claymore called Teresa of the Faint Smile. If there's anything I want to say about that arc, uh, Teresa definitely stole the show. Is a character. <laughs> without a doubt. Like, to you can't see this right now, but I'm, like, actually legit giving Teresa a salute. I love her that much. A character who's only in it for a few episodes, she manages to have a surprisingly large character arc. Yeah, I was actually surprised by that completely, because I, I didn't expect the show to go that deep. And I was pleasantly surprised when they did. Definitely. Just something about it. I think it's just the way that she stuck to her own convictions in a way where she wouldn't let them be contrasted by anything. She was brutal, but also merciful. There was just a lot of depth to this character we saw in a short five-episode span. Uh -huh. Well, she's called Teresa of the Faint Smile. Even if the faint smile is sort of meant to be menacing, it sort of showcases a caring side within her that was probably unseen until Claire starts following her. It's definitely just that, that maternal instinct with this character that I definitely enjoy. It's really contrasting to her nature as this half-monster demon slayer. Just the fact that this character is so blatantly human when she's in this young she's girl. She's a killer with a heart of gold. I just Precisely. Of course, we have to talk about Rocky, and I have had some people complain to me that they didn't like Rocky as a character, but what did you think of him? He's Keiko from Yu Yu Hakusho, except, except not useless. Wow. <laughs> Remember, I watched those three shows back to back. He was, at first I thought he was annoying, but he did have a lot of heart and courage and really pulled through where he needed to be, which definitely made him more redeemable in my eyes. I think he gets a lot better in the manga, but I'm not going to mention too much from that. I like Rocky as a companion character. He has that childish energy to him, but he doesn't come off as being unbearable. 
he's mostly yeah. there to serve as a foil to Claire because Claire is stoic, very serious, unemotional. Rocky, meanwhile, has that youthful innocence to him that is a stark contrast to what Claire is. Yep, well put, well put. Definitely, he's definitely, I'd say, an amazing foil to Claire. So, like I said, he's not useless, and I gotta give that to him. I mean, he's willing to give his life just to protect her, as seen in the fight with I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, even... my goodness. Yep. I gotta give credit, though, for just sending it right into the middle of a battle, just on a whim. It's a great like, character moment, and it yeah. shows his growth. Oh, definitely. Just the fact that he he knew he wasn't going to win against but he still stood his ground and fought. That was the moment where I was like, okay, you know, I wasn't giving this character enough credit. Mm-hmm. It was, at the, it was pretty much at this point that I was like, okay, dude, he's actually, you know, that's, that's, that's some serious BD right there to do that. One other thing I like about the show is that each Claymore, and we talked about how they may look similar and have similar aesthetics, but each one manages to have a unique personality. I think the only real Claymores I feel were interchangeable, or at least had similar personalities, were Miria and Claire, because both have that stoic energy to them. Whereas you have others like, for example, Helena. you have Helena, for instance, who's a lot more yep. cunning and playful. We already mentioned Ophelia, who is very, she has this sort of evil aura to her. You have Miria, who is very much your stoic leader of the group. How would you describe Deneva? She's a very devoted character. She will test her limits willingly without... Or she'll, she'll test her determination willingly, no matter how reckless it is. Which is something I liked about her. And then, of course, you got my girl Undine, who's very smug and arrogant because, you know, just look at her body. If you saw her in a bar, you would not want to mess with her, but not to spoil too much, but she mm -hmm. has something hiding beneath her beefy exterior. <laughs> I had a perfect image for her when I was watching it. I believe, yeah, she's definitely the, to quote or to paraphrase um, a Gretzko, she definitely has that, that air of being the baddest bitch in the room. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, each Claymore manages to feel unique. Some get more screen time than others. You can easily tell which ones are important to the story and which ones aren't because the ones that aren't have virtually no personality. But the ones that do manage to be memorable in their own ways, and I feel that's one of the show's strongest points. Even with its rather large cast, it manages to have a lot of memorable characters, including Ruble, who isn't on screen too much, but you get this aura that he's more than just Claire's handler, that he has his own agenda going on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, he he's definitely sketchy. Definitely a lot more going on beneath the scenes than he likes. Almost on. makes you so almost makes more. you forget he looks like Elmer Fudd. I forgot all about that after like five minutes. Not gonna lie to you. Did I steal your joke? <laughs> Probably. He's got the same head shape as Homer Fudd. He, he does. 
Speaking of which, the villains, I already mentioned the Yoma, like there's nothing to them, but there are some other characters in the show that you could qualify as antagonists. You later on have a band of villains introduced later on, led by this guy with blonde hair by the name of Isley, I believe it it is? Oh, Isley. They pronounce it as Easley, as well as two other beings whose significance isn't revealed until later on. Honestly, if this show had a proper adaptation, I wanted to see more of them, and I've read ahead in the manga, and they become great villains. Yes, that's just the shame to uh, the nature of the show, which I'll so touch sh- on to a little bit later. So, in short, the show needed another two, another two seasons Well, it or so. adapts up to volume 12 or so, and that was how much manga was out at the time. Crap. I was going to say that. It's a shame. Because, I mean, by the end, when you mentioned Easley in this group, I needed more. And that was the thing I got by episode 20. Which one I start to notice this? 24. Yeah, you can definitely tell that there is a lot more to his group than we got in the show. But as far as the story goes, each arc is basically just Claire and Rocky going from town to town fighting Yoma, and I think that that works in its simplicity. Do we want to talk about the show's ending? Because we don't want to get too much into spoiler territory. I really do, because I think it's one of the aspects that hurts this adaptation a lot. I'm a lot more forgiving of the ending than you are, Jordan, and I'll tell you why. My reasoning behind it is that I was expecting the ending to be just the absolute dirt worst But given its context, where the manga was at the time, and compared to some other anime adaptations of manga that I have seen, I didn't mind it. I don't think it's good, per se, but it's fine for what it is. Yeah, it's... If anything, it's a bare minimum passable end, given the circumstances. It's a shame the show didn't have a second or third season. Like it, like I feel as though it does. Not too many spoilers. Not too many spoilers from here on out. I feel that I'm more forgiving of an anime adaptation that sort of does its own thing with the source material when it comes to its ending and succeeds than those that either do it badly or worst case scenario, those that end on a cliffhanger, a la Sekirei or Dead Man Wonderland. Or those that don't have an ending at all, a la Gangster or Tenjo Tenge. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the Devil's a part-timer in terms of having a non- Oh my god! I feel Gangsta's yeah, the biggest- Yeah, that show needs a- I feel Gangsta's the biggest offender simply because that was Studio Manglobe's final note. And what a sour note it was. Ouch. Brutal. Yeah. But what did you think of the ending, Justin? I was like- this close, I mean, really close to calling it a non-ending because by 25 we got a lot of momentum going, and it was sort of like at the sort of like that point where at the bottom of the hill and you're already in, you're still gaining momentum, but you're going pretty fast. And I actually was, I was disappointed, frankly, when I got into the end of the. Um, that was I was watching it on Hulu after Funimation crashed, and I was disappointed that, oh, we were getting to the end already, right when it was starting to sort of 
really find another gear. I was like, oh dear, we're in for a complete non-ending, just like just like Devil's a part-timer. But fortunately, I thought it was good, but very small patch on which they ended it. But ultimately, I th- it left me wanting more. I feel like they left a bunch of stuff, frankly, um, unaccounted for by the end of episode 26. I feel it's very much a case where you have to accept the ending for what it is. In that, hey, we've adapted all the way up to this point, now go and read the manga. Because that fight ends differently in the manga than it does in the anime. Because in the manga, that fight sort of ends on this unfinished note. And then we do a time skip. The anime, it's just takes it to this very strange crescendo before ultimately coming down. It doesn't land with a thud. It sticks the landing as best it can, even though it knows that it isn't going to be a perfect landing. Like, it's going to hobble a bit before standing up perfectly straight. And I think that for what they did, it wasn't a bad ending, but you can definitely tell that they realized, oh crap, we're running out of manga to adapt. Quick, let's throw something together. Perfectly put there. Yeah, it's nail on the head. It's a shame how it turned out. Yeah. But it is what it is at the end of the day. And I just want to say that even with all the negative things we've said about Claymore, I still think it's worth a watch, but (sighs) by the standards of today with what we have, I feel that it doesn't hold up all that well. Like, there's plenty of anime that you can say haven't aged well, but I feel Claymore has not only aged well from an adaptation standpoint, it hasn't aged well from a technical standpoint. Yeah, this show goes straight... I almost, I almost pitied somehow, because about halfway through, I wanted to... Well, I was still flawed, but I want to give as close to corrected, perfect marks as I could, but I honestly couldn't, and... I think this would be a prime candidate for a remake, honestly, because I don't want... It, there's too much in this show that I don't want to get potentially lost to history. Time's indeed passed this one by, but I feel like the story, though, had way more to it than um, what we got back in 2007. Sure. I 100% agree. If there's any anime I would hold to have... Or hold as a candidate, rather to have the full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood treatment, it would be Claymore. The mm-hmm. story deserves to be told. Its world deserves to be more well-known. These characters deserve to have a lot more limelight in today's anime world. Yeah, it's... I also forgot to add, it's a perfect counterpoint to um, how anime is made and what we're, and what we're looking at today. That yeah, It definitely does not deserve to be, I guess, relegated to a best of the 2000s or whatever greatest hits compilation it needs to be like full remake remaster and i honestly want to see funimation get another shot at the dub again they can do because i think they could have done better as well i was gonna say that because i do feel that claymore is a prime candidate for a modern day remake because if we can get fullmetal alchemist brotherhood if we can get a proper fruits basket adaptation and nowadays I believe that anime adaptations are starting to become more and more timed so that they occur at the tail end of a manga's run. So likelihood of them adapting the entire series has greatly increased. And with Claymore, they can adapt all 27 volumes 
within the span of, I would say, 63 episodes, roughly the same length as Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I would love it if a studio like MAPPA or Bones or Production IG, even a studio like Orange, the guys who did Beastars and Land of Lustrous, could take care of this. Worst case scenario is that it gets done by Polygon Pictures or B-Train, they still a thing, or Dean. Like, any of the studios that are known for just being cheap. I was going to say, I kind of don't want Polygon or Dean near this for a remake. I'd rather have A1. <laughs> oh, God, A1, A1 Pictures. Ugh. If That's if we had to. My first pick would actually be MAPPA. Well, yeah, it's very much all Madhouse at MAPPA. Yeah, also, having watched Doro Hidoro, I want... That's what I think this I feel that Doro Hidoro and the new Soccer Wars anime and the stuff by Orange has proven that you can make a CGI anime that looks fantastic. I mean, one more example, the new Lupin movie that's coming out uh, stateside soon, Lupin the Third, the First. Like, you can do a CGI anime and have it look great, and I think Claymore would look good in that style of CGI used in Doro Hidoro. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, someone please make that happen. Mappa doing doing a remake, a 63-episode remake of Claymore. I would yeah, love that. Yeah, I just want to know whether or not Claymore was popular in Japan, because that's the question, because Berserk is still very much popular in Japan, but is Claymore a popular and well-remembered enough to warrant another adaptation? Because Claymore is a show that very much appeals to a Western sort of audience. It's not set in Japan. You don't have that Japanese aesthetic. The most Japanese thing about it is the name of the enemies, Yoma, which is probably a play on the word yokai. It also has direct parallels with a lot of Western media. I mean, just look at the characters. It doesn't look yeah. like your typical anime or manga. I mean, the most anime-looking design in the show is Rocky. If anything, this anime just it has a very occult following. I really think a lot of the hype for this show has died out. Not a lot of anime watchers today know of it, which is a shame. True. But I don't see the chances of it getting a remake... I don't think the percentage of that happening is very high. That's true. It's, it is, I will say, I will concede, though, it is a bit of a long yeah. shot. Still, uh, shows like shows like ours exist for it, so I say anything's possible. I mean, Higurashi's getting a remake, so I never thought that would is happen. It? Yeah, Higurashi, another show that was destined to be in the 2000s bargain bin of anime is coming back. So maybe, maybe there is. Regardless of what you may say about Claymore, we can all agree on one thing. It is still better than the 2016-2017 adaptations of Berserk. We don't talk about those. Yep. Yeah, go and look up that show's production history. It was a very troubled production. It's the definition of a train wreck. I can't believe it actually got a dub. And a decent on paper dub to boot. <laughs> it got a dub? Yeah. That had none of the original actors. Yep. But even then, they had it. They actually put money in for a decent cast, and I'm like, why did they do that? Nice job, Crunchyroll. Nice job. But I feel that's it for Claymore. Had we reviewed this back when it finished coming out, I would have praised it heavily, but looking back on it, I don't think it's held up all that well. And it's not something like Kashan 
or Lupin the Third, where it's a product of its time, but you can still go back and watch it, and it's still enjoyable. I feel that a lot of the faults from the technical standpoint and the fact that it's an unfinished adaptation really sort of hurt its rewatchability. For sure, for sure. It can't even... Also, you missed the you missed one bit in that it can't rely on the, uh, the charm from being a product of its time a lot, just like Lupin. Lupin's very 1960s, 1970s, but that's part of the mm-hmm. charm. But with Claymore... With a lot of 70s shows, they age like fine wine. Claymore has aged like a can of beer that's been left in a dingy refrigerator. Or like a brand new can of soda from the 1980s. (laughs) That's pretty much my version, but with more alcohol. Looking back, I realize why I haven't rewatched this show in 13 years. It's definitely solid, heavily flawed, but I did ultimately enjoy my time watching it despite the technicalities the issues with it it just goes to show when you have a tightly paced story with good characters it could carry a show to well pretty good heights i feel that with claymore if you're gonna watch it you sort of have to be aware that it's going to be dated from a looks perspective and that it only adapts a part of the manga sort of the caveat i would say for dead man wonderland Although, at least in Dead Man Wonderland's case, I can say that I watched the thing when it was on Toonami, so nostalgia factor. Well, with Dead Man Wonderland, they at least ended a good stopping point in the manga, but with Claymore, they had to scramble to finish something. I'll say this, though, I'm glad they didn't adapt the end of the fight in the manga, because if they did, it would have ended on a very awkward note. Yeah, it would have been heavily worse. Also, them to make an entire new season on the spot. I think we've said everything we can say about the show, unless you guys have anything else to say. All I can say is hashtag save Claymore. Hashtag bring it back. All right. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Otaku Nate Show. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we're going to change things up a bit by talking about a movie. But this time, it's going to be in a completely new format. What is this radical new direction I'm taking the podcast in? Well... You'll have to find out next time as we take a look at the 1980s classic anime film, Robot Carnival. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. I'm Justin Young. And Jordan. And we're signing off and saying, you've got way too many of those arms and it annoys me.